0: Happy almost New Year. We're getting closer. Who would have thought you would have been alive in the year 2020, right? When I uh, when I was a kid, and what was that movie? 2001, A Space Odyssey. Do you remember the thing floating in space, and it looked like we were verged to just make inroads into outer space at that time? And I thought... Yeah, we're on the age of a new frontier, and here we are, 2020, and we're nowhere near that. Uh, You know, in my job as a hospice chaplain, I get to talk to people all the time about theology. And I know we kind of live in a day and age where theology has kind of become a four-letter word. Uh, When I say theology, what's the first thing that comes out of people's mind and their ignorance? Oh, theology just... Divides people, right? How many of you have heard that? Yeah. We hear it all the time now. It's just like, uh, theology is, is not good. In fact, one of my patients, he, uh, he's close to a hundred years old, but he's what we would call a kind of a hyper dispensationalist, in that he sees the Old Testament as completely useless. That, uh, that was for Israel. We're the church, and so there's nothing to be gained from the Old Testament, so he doesn't want to talk about it at all. And I think to myself, well, what a shame, you're missing so much, right? There's so much. The Old Testament, yeah, it was a lot of it was historically pertaining to Israel, but it reveals God to us, right? And so this morning, uh, what I would like to do is take us to the Old Testament, to the book of Ruth, and uh, for the next three times I speak, we're going to be doing a series on the book of Ruth in the, in the theological topic of providence. And so uh, providence is one of those subjects that has divided the church unnecessarily over the years. Uh, it's controversial. There are those who hold to what we would call meticulous providence, meaning that God's uh, ruling and order of the world is down even to the, a bird's wings flapping, uh, down to the flitting of a butterfly's wings. So the question is, how much does God control, and how much freedom do we as His creatures have? And that's the question. Providence, uh, traditional theism kind of holds the idea that God is the creator of heaven and earth, right? He created it all. He owns it all, and everything that occurs in the universe takes place under His control. God is sovereign in His guidance and control, and according to believers, um, God governs creation as a loving Father, working all things together for our good, right? How many of you would affirm that this morning? Amen. Amen. So if we believe that, then we also must affirm that in His providence, He uses pain and painful situations and circumstances in our lives to bring about His perfect will in our lives. That is our holiness and His glory. It reveals, in a sense, His perfect will in our lives. Now, Nobody likes pain, right? I don't like pain. I don't know about you, but I just had surgery. I definitely don't like pain. Uh, But it's part of life. But painful situations in life are designed by God to, in a sense, refine us, um, to train us to obedience, to discipline us uh, for our good. Now, if you're not there already, turn to Ruth chapter 1. This first message, we're going to call it um, Providence and Pain. The next one will be Providence and Plans. Uh, That is how God interacts with human planning. And the third one will be um, Providence and Prayer. That is how God interacts with human prayers. Now, the big argument against meticulous providence is this. Are we robots, right? How many you've probably heard that expression, right? Are we just robots that God pulls all the strings and we just like our marionettes doing exactly what he wants all the time? Well, only if you're a first-year seminary student, right? The more you think about the subject, the more you realize, yes, man's decisions somehow play into interacting. I mean, you came here this morning... By what? Your own decision, right? You decided to get out of bed and come here this morning. But somehow, in God's providence, He ordained for you to be here this morning. And the two somehow interact together. And the hope is that we're going to sort of pull back the veil a little bit and see how God works behind the scenes. Um, Providence uh, has been sort of called the invisible hand of God. That somehow God works behind the scenes. Um, and He doesn't sort of just react to what we do. He, He causes things by moving pieces around and, and ordaining them in His perfect will that was set from eternity past. And how do I know that? Well, just a few statements in the Bible make that plain as day. I mean, in Acts, it tells us that. All the rulers were gathered there in in Jerusalem to put Christ to death at that particular time. But it was also predicted hundreds of years beforehand that that was going to happen. Now, the only way that we could predict such a thing and make it happen is if you had control, right? Thus, that was all under God's control. It even says it was part of his predetermined plan and purpose. So which is it is God sovereign or are we free? Yes, (laughs) that's exactly right. Well, if you're there in the book of Ruth, um, let's I'm going to read through the first chapter. And and because this is Old Testament narrative and we're dealing with the subject more in a theological uh, sense, it's going to be less verse-by-verse verse exposition, which I'm used to, um, and which you're probably used to. It's more of a topical message, um, but it is derived from the text. So, so there. <laughs> so, let's, uh, let's go ahead and read Ruth chapter 1. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was, it's actually pronounced Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Oprah. No, actually, it's Orpah, but that's where Oprah got her name from. She misspelled it. Uh, Her parents did. Um, And the name of the other, Ruth and they lived there about ten years. Then both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and the, women were bereft of, uh, I'm sorry, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, If I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried." Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, there's three approaches, I think, the three main approaches you can take to this book. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but I'll just kind of give you a little bit of background. The main character of the story, the book is titled Ruth, but it's actually more about Naomi. Um, if you'll notice in chapter one, it's it's Naomi whose husband dies. It's Naomi's sons who die. It's Naomi that Ruth clings to and goes back uh, to Judah with. Uh, And over in chapter 4, when a child is born uh, to the union of Ruth and Boaz, it actually says that uh, Naomi has been redeemed um, through that child. The, The story primarily is about Naomi and the redemption of Naomi. However... They named it the book of Ruth because Ruth is in the lineage of Christ later on. We'll see. The main theme is redemption by a close relative. In Hebrew, it's the word goel. Uh, he's, a, he's a relative who's allowed to, when, when a husband passes away, the brother is allowed to marry. The goel is allowed to marry that woman and help her raise up children um, in order to provide for her in her old age and and to continue her inheritance in the land. And so that's also the primary... That's really... You've probably heard about the story about the kinsman redeemer and that uh, that's really where Christ sort of plays into this because Christ, in a sense, is our kinsman redeemer. He has redeemed us uh, in the same way. Chapter 3, verse 12. If you want to look at that. Now, it's true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. So that's Boaz speaking, and he is indeed a goel. He is a close relative. He has the right to redeem Naomi and her property and the land uh, through marrying Ruth. Um, so that is a major theme as well. But the one that I want to tap into today... And for the next three weeks is the topic of God's providence. Uh, chapter one, verse six. You see, it says in a very um, veiled statement, uh, that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. right? We're in the middle of a drought. We're in the middle of a famine, and the Lord has visited His people. He has brought food. To Judah, which is what is going to draw uh, Naomi back over to that region. So it's the hand of the Lord, His providence working behind the scenes, orchestrating things to bring her back to her inherited land. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3. You see, uh, there it says, uh, that Ruth goes out and went and to glean in the fields to pick up the scraps of barley uh, so they might have some food to eat. And it says she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. So what do you know? She, she happens to stumble across, we might say, uh, her chance chanced upon the field of a close relative, a Goel, who has the ability to redeem her. What are the chances? Right? What are the chances? Uh, The writer wants you to feel that. He wants you to know that. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 13. You get another statement of God's providential hand. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son, and that son would be close relative then, uh, uh, just a few generations away from King David. Um, And then King David, we know, would would lead to Christ. And so here's this Gentile woman, uh, Ruth, who's been redeemed in the plan and purpose of God, and she gives birth to this child, and this child happens to be in the lineage of Christ. If that isn't the providential hand of God working, I don't know what is. (laughs) Um, So this morning, we really want to just discuss how the human life, human pain, human suffering interacts, in a sense, with the will of God. Why Why do people suffer? You know, why, why do we suffer? Uh, so this week we're going to see three sets of instruments in the book of Ruth which God used to guide and discipline his people so that we will find comfort and rest in his providence. That's ultimately what this is about, right? Theology is up for us to know God better, and as we know God better, we can rest in him. So the first set of instruments, you're going to want to write these down. These are the three. And this is one of the first of three main points here. Uh, darkness and depravity. So this is going to be an uplifting message, right? I thought you might want to start out the year this way. Darkness and depravity. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, it says in verse one, it came about in the days when the judges governed, literally when the judges judged. Um, this story takes place during the period of Judges. If you know Israel's history, right, they came out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They camped on the plains of Moab. They, they came across the Jordan River. They, they took the nation of Israel by force uh, with God as their commander-in-chief. And all that was left for them to do was just to, in a sense, finish the job to take possession of the land that God had given them. And they were supposed to do that by driving out their enemies before them. The the people of the land, the Canaanites, they were supposed to eject them from the land. Well, you read the first chapter of Judges and you find they did not do that. They, uh, they decided to try to outsmart God's plan and make them forced laborers. And instead, they became a thorn in the people's side for... 300 years. So this period, though, is characterized by full-blown, utter moral depravity and brutality. I mean, it's barbaric. It's barbaric. All you have to do is read the narrative. It's barbaric. And the writer of Judges, he pulls no punches about describing the depths of human depravity in this book. There are 13 judges covering different geographical areas. And and you'll recall that this was the the time, as I said, that the nation was supposed to possess the different geographic regions according to their tribes. And, And as they obeyed God and did what they were supposed to do, they would be blessed, right? Deuteronomy 28, they would be blessed as part of the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant. But if they disobeyed God, what would happen? That a blessing, cursing, right? Their enemies would chase them down. The, the rain would stop. The ground would harden. They would have blight. They would have mildew. They would have pestilence. Um, just all kinds of problems for disobedience. And so we see that over and over again in the book of Judges. And again, Ruth takes place during the period of the Judges. Judges 2, 11-23, I don't have time to read that whole passage, but I would refer you to it. It describes this cycle that goes on in the book of Judges, right? The people sin, and when they sin, just like God said, the curses of the covenant would come in, And they would be made servants. It would be servitude towards the people of the land. And they would cry out to God in their distress. You could say supplication. They would supplicate to God. And God would intervene with a judge and he would save them. There would be a salvation somewhere in the record. And then the judge would save them, and then they would have a period of security for a time. Okay, so that's the cycle. It's, it's sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, security. Over and over again. Thirteen times in the book of Judges over a 300-year period. And this, this decline in moral perversity, uh, I just pulled out a few highlights for you in the book, okay? Just so you understand the time period that we're talking about with Naomi and Ruth. I mean, we think it's bad now, but it was bad back then. Trust me. You remember the story of Ehud, the left-hander in chapter 3, right? He strapped a dagger to his right thigh and, and he, he plunged it into that disgusting uh, king's abdomen. And when he pulled out the dagger, what happened? It says his guts spilled out all over the place, right? I mean, it's, it's very graphic, and it's intentionally so. You remember the story of Sisera in J.L. chapter 4? He goes hiding in her tent, and she sort of waits till he's asleep, and she takes a tent peg and cracks the mallet and and drives the tent peg through his skull so it goes out the back of his skull into the ground, right? Intentionally graphic. Uh, in Hebrew, the way the verbs are used there, it's really interesting because it's almost like you, you see this happen, you see this happen, and then you hear this happen. And what you hear is the crack of the mallet and the crack of his skull. It, it's very interesting, if you like that sort of thing. Chapter 11 with Jephthah. I mean, as you look at the judges, the first half of the book of Judges, they're from that first generation, right, that that took possession of the land. The second half of the book of Judges are ones now that are the first generation born in the land. And Jephthah is one of the first judges born in the land, and they make a point of telling you that his mom was a harlot. His mom was the other woman. And so here you have this judge. Even the hero of the story is tainted. And they make a point of telling you that. You remember Samson. He's our hero, right? The guy with the long hair and Samson and Delilah, and he's a hero. Well, Samson married a daughter of the Philistines. He married outside of the Israelites, and he was a man who could not control his own lusts. He was not a hero even though God went all the way back to the womb to try to set somebody aside. If you'll notice the narrative of the book of Judges, that's the only place in in that whole book where an angel of the Lord shows up and he says, this child is going to be set apart to be a savior from the womb. And it's interesting because he's still a human born though, right? He's not divine. And so he turns out to be even though he's a Levite from the womb, he's what? Or a Nazarite from the womb, I mean. I said Levite, I meant Nazarite. He's still a wretched sinner. So even the best of men are men at best. You get over to chapter 18, verse 3, and something unthinkable happens. A a Levite priest sells himself out for hire and that Levite priest turns out to be Moses' grandson. Unbelievable. A priest for hire. You get to chapter 19, you have the the violation and the abuse and the dismemberment of the Levite's concubine. You remember that story? Really a lovely story. Because of what happened to her, there was a civil war between the Benjamites and the rest of Israel. Everybody came out to fight against the tribe of Benjamin. And so in chapter 20, you have this raging civil war, which almost destroyed the entire Benjamite tribe. Following that, you have the execution of all the men, children, and non-virgins in Jabesh-Gilead because they were the only tribe that didn't come out to fight against the Benjamites. They were the only city. And so all of Israel gathered and said, Listen, the tribe of Benjamin is nearly wiped out. We need to not have the tribe of Benjamin die out from the inheritance in the land. So we've got to find them some wives. Who are we going to get? Well, there's always Jabesh Gilead. They didn't go and try to destroy the Benjamites. They stayed out from war. They held themselves back. So, so what do they do? All of Israel goes up and they slaughter the whole town. Men, children, non-virgins, and they take 400 virgins and they give them to the Benjamites to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. It's horrible. It's atrocious. Judges twenty-one twenty-five tops it off and says, listen, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was debauched. It was depraved. And this is the time that Naomi and Ruth find themselves without husbands, without land, without food, destitute. They are in the middle of darkness and depravity, and it's, it's just the worst time possible to be alone. And that's exactly what they are. But in the details, the invisible hand of God is at work. God is working behind the scenes, bringing about his perfect will. And God had a plan for Naomi and Ruth to be part of that plan. Tragedy. They got nothing but tragedy in their lives. But God is using that for his purposes to bring about not only the birth of King David, but down the road in Matthew's genealogy, the birth of Christ. Christ. You know, I used to say when I was younger that I didn't want to have kids because I didn't want to bring my children into a world like this. How many of you have said that? Yeah. It's much worse now than it was when I said that. That was, what, 26 years ago? Much worse now. At least it appears that way. And I imagine that the average Israelite probably said to themselves something similar, right? I don't want to have children. I don't want to bring children into a world like this. Do you realize, pardon me, but that is the shameful lack of trust in the providence of God. And I say that to myself, shameful. Shameful. And I know living in a climate of moral debauchery, can, it can grow very discouraging for a believer. Right? I read the headlines every day. I know what it's like. But it's only discouraging if you lose your perspective in the providence of God. The situation can appear hopeless. I mean, all you see is pain and sorrow rather than abundance of opportunity. Yet, here's the story of Ruth. And how many of you have ever bought jewelry from a jeweler, right? Any guy who's bought a wedding ring, what do they do? They take that ring out and they put it on black velvet and they shine the light on it and it it beams, right? And so this story of Ruth has been described that way as, as the shining glittering little beam of light in the midst of a very dark and depraved period of Israel's history. I mean, our hope lies in the fact that God controls all things and he orchestrates all things according to his eternal plan and purpose, right? And we don't place our trust in the circumstances themselves. We place our trust in the one who holds all those circumstances in his hands. So, yeah, if you look at the circumstances themselves, you're going to get discouraged. But if you look to God and his providence, that's where the hope is. I mean, God was the one who had redeemed Israel and established his eternal covenant with them, right? He sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. He was the one who had brought them, as it were, to this land on wings of eagles, right? He swept them into the land. He fought for them. He gave them this land. All they had to do was to just own what God had given them. Take possession of it. And they just couldn't do it. And their disobedience has led this now to chastisement. See, people live in a time and a season that God ordains for them. God appointed them to live in this time and in this season. And yes, it's dark and depraved, but, but God is at work in the midst of it. You have to see that. I like what Walter Elwell said here. He's a, a biblical commentator. He said, There is unquestionably a great mystery here as to how a holy God who cannot even look upon evil can work His will through evil. But that He does is the clear teaching of Scripture. If something could get outside the will of God, it would become a God unto itself and a an rival to God. And such can never be the case. God alone is God, and there is no other. Right? Right? So, if we are to place our faith in His providence, then we must acknowledge that that God knows all the contingencies, but He doesn't do anything contingently. Am I right? He knows it all, but He's not the recipient of new information. God is omniscient, right? He knows it all. His plan is eternal. And there is no will aside from His perfect will. So, here's the thing. Even what we see as bad, from God's perspective, it's, say it with me, it's good. Right? It has to be. The thing is that we need a perspective shift. If we truly believe, Romans 8, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose, then we have to say that even the stuff that we consider as bad, God intends for our good. And that would include moral darkness and depravity. The time that we live in is under the sovereign control of the Almighty God. His invisible hand rules and reigns over it all. And He doesn't simply react. He doesn't react. He's the initiator, and He uses it as His instrument. Secondly, if you're not there, Ruth chapter 1 again The second instrument that God uses to discipline and guide his people is drought and destitution. I told you this was going to be uplifting, right? Drought and destitution. It says there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And they entered the land of Moab and remained there. And it's probably we're talking about a 10 year period. They went And left the promised land. There was a drought. There was a famine. They're hungry. So, what do they do? They cross over the Jordan River. They go to Moab. And they try to survive there. And they don't just stay there for a little while, they stay there for 10 years. They marry women of the land. They settle in. They're there for the long haul. The irony in the story from a literary point of view is that there's a famine in the land and the, the city name that they're from, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, means house of bread in Hebrew. <laughs> so there's no bread in the house of bread. So they leave. And let's just say on the front side, we don't really understand what it's like to go through a famine. I've never been involved in a famine. Have you? I mean, we don't really know what it's like uh, to live in a drought. I mean, we lived in California. There was a drought there, but there was no famine. So the conditions are foreign to us. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. The, the animals are falling to the ground from dehydration and dying. Um, there's no food to give to your children. You're watching everybody starve to death. What do you do? What do you do? That being said, however, I think Elimelech sinned by going to Moab. And I'll prove my point. I mean, droughts were not uncommon in biblical times. God often used them to accomplish his will in the lives of his people, right? Uh, We look at Genesis 12, Genesis 26, Genesis 46. Where did everybody go when there was a drought? South to Egypt, right? Let's go down to Egypt. But there's something going on here that comes, I believe, out of the curses of the covenant. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 with me. And uh, just let your eyes drift to verse 12. As part of the blessings of the covenant for obedience, the Lord will open for you His good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You're going to have so much you can let everybody else live off your excess. Um, but, but you're going to have a lot. You're going to be so blessed because of your obedience. The heavens will open up. It's going to rain Fertility in the ground. Um, Now look at verse 24. If you disobey, though, here's the consequences of the disobedience. Uh, Start in verse 23. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under your feet iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So what are the curses of the covenant? Drought and famine. Uh, You see the same thing over in Hosea 4, 1 to 3. I don't have time to take you over there, but you can reference that. The same thing, it says that the animals and stuff are languishing in the dust. They're, They're just falling to the ground and dying. It's so dry there. And that would take place uh, later on as Israel continued to disobey. The whole point is the curses of the covenant were designed to bring about repentance. Right? If you obey, blessing. If you disobey, cursing. And the cursing is designed to push you back to the Lord in repentance. Now, We've got to look at a few passages here. Go to your minor prophets over to Amos. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos chapter 4, uh, verses 7 to 12. This is God speaking through the prophet Amos. And he says, Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you, While there were still three months until harvest, then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the other part, not rained on, would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and your vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you, and you have not returned to me. I'm going to summarize here. I overthrew you, and you have not returned to me. Verse 12, Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. (laughs) Yikes. So listen, here's the thing. If they would have repented, God would have given them rain. But they didn't. And so their continued disobedience led to these drought conditions. Now I'm not saying today in the day and age we live in that God still works in the same way. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. But it's important to see how God interacted with His people here, right? Turn over to Psalm 33, verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His lovingkindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And you can look at Jeremiah 5:24 to 25 I don't have time to go there. Warren Wiersbe, another Bible commentator, he said this. I think it's insightful. It's better to starve in the will of God than to take bread from the enemy. I think, I think he's got a point there. Instead of repenting and trusting God, this man, Elimelech, forsook his inheritance. He took his family off the promised land of Moab. And, and because of his failure, his family paid the price. In the providence of God, however, this is all according to his eternal plan. We'll say that over and over again. Sometimes pain has to come before blessing, right? Just ask Job. <laughs> Had there been no drought, then Elimelech would never have left the land. Ruth would not later marry Boaz, never have redeemed Ruth and Naomi. David would not have been born. Christ would not have been born. You see the the domino effect. Uh, Jerry Bridges says this. We do have a responsibility to make wise decisions or to discover the will of God whichever term we may prefer to use, but God's plan for us is not contingent upon our decisions. God's plan is not contingent at all. God's plan is sovereign, and it includes our foolish decisions as well as our wise ones. I don't know if that comforts you or unsettles you. (laughs) But even our bad decisions, God somehow is involved in using them as part of his plan. I don't know how that works. And let me just say, you may be experiencing pain in your life right now. I mean, you may have come in here today going through circumstances that um, you may never have thought you would be going through. I don't know. And the question you need to ask yourself, is this pain being caused by my own disobedience? Am I, am I sort of in the backwash of the consequences of my bad decisions? Or am I suffering in the will of God? Because, because I'm serving Christ and I'm being persecuted for it. How do, you even, how do you even know what the will of God is? I mean, these are good questions to ask yourself. How do you know what the will of God is? Well, you can, you can know through His revealed Word, there are some direct statements in Scripture. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Prove what the will of God is. I mean, that's a direct statement. So search the Scriptures. Find statements that tell you what God's will is. There are statements that are direct as to this is the will of God for you. And then there are other allusions and precepts that we should follow. But walking in obedience to God is, is the first step. Walking in obedience to His will. I have to move on. God used darkness and depravity He used drought and destitution. And the third set of instruments which he used to guide and discipline his people is death and despair. Thought I would finish on a high note. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. Then her two sons died and she was bereft of her two children and her husband. Could it get any worse for this woman? Tragedy. I mean, Naomi's husband died as well as her two sons, and and all she's got left are these two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And we don't know why all the men died. The text doesn't really say, but, but I have my suspicions. But the real tragedy here is that Naomi is beyond childbearing years. Naomi is so old, uh, she says, I've lost everything. I mean, I've lost my husband. I've been taken off the land. I have no inheritance. I can't even farm any land. Uh, I have no sons, no heirs to my land. Uh, I'm too old to even get pregnant, to have more sons. I, I don't have a husband. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? The text says in verse 21 that, that Naomi went out full and she's come back to Bethlehem empty. By the way, Naomi means pleasant. But she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara which means bitter. The the Lord has dealt harshly with me. I mean, she sees her situation as hopeless. Hopeless. And she rightly attributes it to who? God. She says God's hand has gone forth against me, verse 13. Verse 21, the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. You know, beyond this, she tells her daughters-in-law, verses 11-13, listen, I'm not pregnant with sons for you to marry, and even if I were, are you going to wait around for them to grow up? Right? And then marry them? I mean you're out of luck too. I mean the Lord has dealt harshly with all of us. We are we're done for. We're goners. I'm too old to remarry and start over again. I've got nothing. And and she says, "Listen, you might have a chance if you go back to your people and your gods. At least you can remarry. But I've got nothing." Um but Ruth This is where the story turns to Ruth. This is what God is going to use, uh, whom God is going to use in this situation to redeem Naomi, is Ruth and her faithfulness. And she says, I'm not going anywhere. You and I, we're sticking together like glue. Right? Your God's going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. I'm going to die in your land. Okay? There is nothing that's going to separate us. You have to understand, folks, there's no social security system in place, right? There's nothing to fall back on here. If you don't have any children, you have no one to care for you in your old age. No inheritance, no, nobody to pass the land off to. And beyond that, you have to think in terms of a lineage, If she has no husband and she has no sons, then that name is going to die off and and be out of the land that God had given them. This is about as desperate as desperate can be. But God is going to use this despair. She's got nowhere else to go. She's got nothing to eat. And so she hears a rumor. And the rumor is this, God has visited his people over in my old hometown. There's food there. And so in a desperate attempt at survival, she's going to go back to Bethlehem. And Ruth is going to go with her. They're not thinking about blessings at this point. They're just thinking about survival. But that's where the providence of God in the story is, is sort of the, the veil is being pulled back a little bit and we can see God's at work, right? And, and at the end of the chapter, what does it say? They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. What God is going to use to draw them back You know, I just want to back up to a second here and just talk about losing children. Um, I think it's one thing to lose a spouse, but I think as a parent, there's probably no greater pain in this life than to lose a child. And this woman, in the span of 10 years, has lost her husband and both of her sons. I can't imagine the pain that she is enduring right now. She's not only desperate for her own life, but she has lost all hope for the future as well. And we're reading the story from the outside. You know, we don't feel it the way they feel it. Ruth and Naomi, uh, they lost everything that is worth anything. They're living this reality. They're, they're weeping. They're broken. They're desperate. And yet, at the end of themselves, where do they turn? They, they turn to God. Right? To, to the rumor that God is providing for His people back home. Now let me ask you a question. How did Ruth know that Naomi... Worship the God of Israel. I mean, she told her to go back to her own people and her own God, right? And Naomi says, oh, no, no. I'm sticking with you and your God, right? How did she know that? Because Naomi was a woman of faith. And that's really what this story boils down to, is that Looking back, I mean, Ruth was written later on, after the period of the Judges. Looking back, what people saw was that King David's family came from a line of faithful people in Bethlehem. And it all started back here with Naomi. You know, grief is... One of the most difficult things to overcome in this life. I, I don't know how people do it without the Lord. My wife and I have talked about that. I, if you lose somebody close to you, I just don't know how you do it without the Lord. And I've been in pastoral ministry for 15 years now, and three of the last, the last three years in hospice. And, and I have some advice for you, just some pastoral advice. Don't just plan for your future financially. Plan for your future in regards to your faith, because you're going to face an avalanche of loss. Okay, you lose your independence, you lose your health, you lose your wealth, you lose the people you love, you lose your house, the ability to make decisions. It's one loss after another. And it can be a very refining time, but it can also be a very painful time. You should prepare for it. It's coming, beloved. Prepare yourselves. And like I said, perhaps God is testing you in a way you never thought possible before. And here you are. And it's the providence of God at work. And the difficult thing for me to watch as a pastor is when believers go through trials and grief as though they have no hope. You go through these things and it just undoes you. And I'm not denying the pain. I I know the pain is real. But if we believe in the power of God... If we believe in providence, then we have to affirm that there is no tragedy that takes place in our life that is apart from His will and purpose. Right? That's a hard pill to swallow. But it's every bit true. There is no season of trial that takes God by surprise. It's all part of of His providential care for us. Romans 8.28. I'll say it again. We know that God causes all things to what? To work together for good. Right? To those who are called according to His purpose. Focus on the word cause. Does God allow things to happen? Does God sort of just take the bad things and sort of duct tape it all together to try to fix the mess? Or does He cause it to all work together? I mean, think about it. This is where our theology gets very practical. God is not up there wringing His hands trying to figure out His next move. This is called the doctrine of confluence. And somehow God subjects evil and pain, death and despair to His purposes, and somehow He makes it all work together for good for His elect. And I have no idea how. But think about it with me. What's the greatest evil that ever occurred? The crucifixion of Christ, right? Christ did not deserve death. He did nothing to deserve that. He was the righteous one. God Himself in the flesh put to death by murderers as part of the plan and purpose of God. For you. I don't know how it all works, but I just pray that God would give us eyes of faith to see what He is accomplishing in our time and how He's using you as part of it darkness and depravity, drought and destitution, death and despair. Instruments that God uses. This has been fun. Thanks, Pastor. <laughs> God uses pain to, to move His people along a pathway, right? And then like a surgeon once told his patient, I may hurt you, but I will not injure you. Matthew Henry said, Extraordinary afflictions are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins, get this, but sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces. Think about that. Afflictions as graces. So our Heavenly Father uses these things as divine instruments. And I preached through Hebrews 12 a while back, and we talked about you would be an illegitimate child if you weren't experiencing trials and discipline in your life. The Lord can and will use every means at His disposal to conform you to the image of Christ because that's what He promised He would do for you. And I hope that comforts you this morning. John Flavel back in 1671 said this, and I'll just end with this, the more afflictions you have been under, the more assistance you have had for this life of holiness. I'll leave you with that. Just think on that for a little while.